Book Three, Chapter Seven of History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Three, Chapter Seven. Terrible Massacre. Tranquility Restored. Reflections on the Massacre. Further Proceedings. Envoys from Montezuma. With the first streak of morning light, Cortez was seen on horseback, directing the movements of his little band. The strength of his forces he drew up in the great square or court, surrounded partly by buildings, as before noticed, and in part by a high wall. There were three gates of entrance, at each of which he placed a strong guard. The rest of his troops, with his great guns, he posted without enclosure, in such a manner as to command the avenues, and secure those within from interruption in their bloody work. Orders had been sent the night before to the Tlaxcalan chiefs to hold themselves ready, at a concerted signal, to march into the city and join the Spaniards. The arrangements were hardly completed before the Cholulan caciques appeared, leading a body of levies, tamanes, even more numerous than had been demanded. They were marched at once into the square, commanded, as we have seen, by the Spanish infantry, which was drawn up under the walls. Cortes then took some of the caciques aside. With a stern air, he bluntly charged them with the conspiracy, showing that he was well acquainted with all the particulars. He had visited their city, he said, at the invitation of their emperor, had come as a friend, had respected the inhabitants and their property, and, to avoid all cause of umbrage, had left a great part of his forces without the walls. They had received him with a show of kindness and hospitality, and, reposing on this, he had been decoyed into the snare, and found this kindness only a mask to cover the blackest perfidy. The Cholulans were thunderstruck at the accusation. An undefined awe crept over them as they gazed on the mysterious strangers, and felt themselves in the presence of beings who seemed to have the power of reading the thoughts scarcely formed in their bosoms. There was no use in prevarication or denial before such judges. They confessed the whole, and endeavoured to excuse themselves by throwing the blame on Montezuma. Cortes, assuming an air of higher indignation at this, assured them that the pretense should not serve, since, even if well founded, it would be no justification, and he would now make such an example of them for their treachery, that the report of it should ring throughout the wide borders of Anahuac. The fatal signal, the discharge of an arquebuse, was then given. In an instant every musket and crossbow was levelled at the unfortunate Cholulans in the courtyard, and a frightful volley poured into them as they stood together like a herd of deer in the centre. They were taken by surprise, for they had not heard the preceding dialogue with the chiefs. They made scarcely any resistance to the Spaniards, who followed up the discharge of their pieces by rushing on them with their swords, and, as the half-naked bodies of the natives afforded no protection, they hewed them down with as much ease as the reaper mows down the ripe corn in harvest-time. Some endeavoured to scale the walls, but only afforded a surer mark to the arquebusier and the archers. Others threw themselves into the gateways, but were received on the long pikes of the soldiers who guarded them. Some few had better luck in hiding themselves under the heaps of the slain, with which the ground was soon loaded." While this work of death was going on, the countrymen of the slaughtered Indians, drawn together by the noise of the massacre, had commenced a furious assault on the Spaniards from without. But Cortes had placed his battery of heavy guns in a position that commanded the avenues, and swept off the files of the assailants as they rushed on. 
in the intervals between the discharges which in the imperfect state of the science in that day were much longer than in ours he forced back the press by charging with the horse into the midst the steeds the guns the weapons of the spaniards were all new to the cholulans notwithstanding the novelty of the terrific spectacle the flash of firearms mingling with the deafening roar of the artillery as its thunders reverberated among the buildings the despairing indians pushed on to take the places of their fallen comrades while this fierce struggle was going on the tlascalans hearing the concerted signal had advanced with a quick pace into the city they had bound by order of cortez wreaths of sedge round their heads that they might the more surely be distinguished from the cholulans coming up in the very heat of the engagement they fell on the defenceless rear of the townsmen who trampled down under the heels of the castilian cavalry on one side and galled by their vindictive enemies on the other could no longer maintain their ground they gave way some taking refuge in the nearest buildings which being partly of wood were speedily set on fire others fled to the temples one strong party with a number of priests at its head got possession of the great teocalli there was a vulgar tradition already alluded to that on removal of part of the walls the god would send forth an inundation to overwhelm his enemies the superstitious cholulans with great difficulty succeeded in wrenching away some of the stones in the walls of the edifice but dust not water followed their false gods deserted them in their hour of need in despair they flung themselves into the wooden turrets that crowned the temple and poured down stones javelins and burning arrows on the spaniards as they climbed the great staircase which by a flight of one hundred and twenty steps scaled the face of the pyramid but the fiery shower fell harmless on the steel bonnets of the christians while they availed themselves of the burning shafts to set fire to the wooden citadel which was speedily wrapped in flames still the garrison held out and though quarter it it is said was offered only one cholulan availed himself of it the rest threw themselves headlong from the parapet or perished miserably in the flames all was now confusion and uproar in the fair city which had so lately reposed in security and peace the groans of the dying the frantic supplications of the vanquished for mercy were mingled with the loud battle-cries of the spaniards as they rode down their enemy and with the shrill whistle of the tlascalans who gave full scope to the long-cherished rancor of ancient rivalry the tumult was still further swelled by the incessant rattle of musketry and the crash of falling timbers which sent up a volume of flame that outshone the ruddy light of morning making altogether a hideous confusion of sights and sounds that converted the holy city into a pandemonium as resistance slackened the victors broke into the houses and sacred places plundering them of whatever valuables they contained plate jewels which were found in some quantity wearing apparel and provisions the two last coveted even more than the former by the simple tlascalans thus facilitating a division of the spoil much to the satisfaction of their christian confederates amidst this universal license it is worthy of remark the commands of cortez were so far respected that no violence was offered to women or children though these as well as numbers of the men were made prisoners to be swept into slavery by the tlascalans these scenes of violence had lasted some hours when cortez moved by the entreaties of some cholulan chiefs who had been reserved from the massacre backed by the prayers of the mexican envoys consented out of regard as he said to the latter the representatives of montezuma to call off the soldiers and put a stop as well as he could to further outrage two of the caciques were also permitted to go to their countrymen with assurances of pardon and protection to all who would return to their obedience 
These measures had their effect. By the joint efforts of Cortes and the caciques, the tumult was with much difficulty appeased. The assailants, Spaniards and Indians, gathered under their respective banners, and the Cholulans, relying on the assurance of their chiefs, gradually returned to their homes. The first act of Cortes was to prevail on the Tuscalan chiefs to liberate their captives. Such was their deference to the Spanish commander that they acquiesced, though not without murmurs, contenting themselves as best as they could with the rich spoil rifled from the Cholulans, consisting of various luxuries long since unknown in Tlaxcala. His next care was to cleanse the city from its loathsome impurities, particularly from the dead bodies which lay festering in heaps in the streets and great square. The general, in his letter to Charles V, admits three thousand slain, most accounts say six, and some swell the amount yet higher. As the eldest and principal cacique was among the number, Cortes assisted the Cholulans in installing a successor in his place. By these pacific measures, confidence was gradually restored. The people in the environs, reassured, flocked into the capital to supply the place of the diminished population. The markets were again opened, and the usual avocations of an orderly, industrious community were resumed. Still, the long piles of black and smouldering ruins proclaimed the hurricane which had so lately swept over the city, and the walls surrounding the scene of slaughter in the great square, which were standing more than fifty years after the event, told the sad tale of the massacre of Cholula. This passage in their history is one of those that have left a dark stain on the memory of the conquerors. Nor can we contemplate at this day without a shudder the condition of this fair and flourishing capital thus invaded in its privacy, and delivered over to the excesses of a rude and ruthless soldiery. But to judge the action fairly, we must transport ourselves to the age when it happened. The difficulty that meets us in the outset is to find a justification of the right of conquest at all. But it should be remembered that religious infidelity at this period, and till a much later, was regarded, no matter whether founded on ignorance or education, whether hereditary or acquired, heretical or pagan, as a sin to be punished with fire and faggot in this world, and eternal suffering in the next. Under this code the territory of the heathen, wherever found, was regarded as a sort of religious waif, which, in default of a legal proprietor, was claimed and taken possession of by the Holy See, and as such was freely given away by the head of the church to any temporal potentate whom he pleased, that would assume the burden of conquest. Thus, Alexander the Sixth generously granted a large portion of the western hemisphere to the Spaniards, and of the eastern to the Portuguese. These lofty pretensions of the successors of the humble fishermen of Galilee, far from being nominal, were acknowledged and appealed to as conclusive in controversies between nations. With the right of conquest thus conferred came also the obligation, on which it may be said to have been founded, to retrieve the nations sitting in darkness from eternal perdition. This obligation was acknowledged by the best and the bravest, the gownsman in his closet, the missionary, and the warrior in the crusade. However much it may have been debased by temporal motives, and mixed up with worldly considerations of ambition and avarice, it was still active in the mind of the Christian conqueror. We have seen how far paramount it was to every calculation of personal interest in the breast of Cortes. The concession of the Pope, then, founded on and enforcing the imperative duty of conversion, was the assumed basis, and in the apprehension of that age a sound one, of the right of conquest. The right could not, indeed, be construed to authorize any unnecessary act of violence to the natives. The present expedition, up to the period of its history at which we are now arrived, had probably been stained with fewer of such acts than almost any similar enterprise of the Spanish discoverers in the New World. 
Throughout the campaign, Cortez had prohibited all wanton injuries to the natives, in person or property, and had punished the perpetrators of them with exemplary severity. He had been faithful to his friends, and with perhaps a single exception, not unmerciful to his foes. Whether from policy or principle, it should be recorded to his credit, though, like every sagacious mind, he may have felt that principle and policy go together. He had entered Jalula as a friend, at the invitation of the Indian Emperor, who had a real, if not avowed, control over the state. He had been received as a friend, with every demonstration of goodwill, when, without any offence of his own or his followers, he found they were to be the victims of an insidious plot, that they were standing on a mine which might be sprung at any moment, and bury them all in its ruins. His safety, as he truly considered, left no alternative but to anticipate the blows of his enemies. Yet who can doubt that the punishment thus inflicted was excessive, that the same end might have been attained by directing the blow against the guilty chiefs, instead of letting it fall on the ignorant rabble, who but obeyed the commands of their masters? But when was it ever seen that fear, armed with power, was scrupulous in the exercise of it, or that the passions of a fierce soldiery, inflamed by conscious injuries, could be regulated in the moment of explosion. But whatever be thought of this transaction in a moral view, as a stroke of policy it was unquestionable. The nations of Anahuac had beheld, with admiration mingled with awe, the little band of Christian warriors steadily advancing along the plateau in face of every obstacle, overturning army after army with as much ease, apparently, as the good ship throws off the angry billows from her bows or rather like the lava which, rolling from their own volcanoes, holds on its course unchecked by obstacles, rock, tree, or building, bearing them along, or crushing and consuming them in its fiery path. The prowess of the Spaniards, the white gods, as they were often called, made them to be thought invincible. But it was not till their arrival at Cholula that the natives learned how terrible was their vengeance, and they trembled. None trembled more than the Aztec emperor on his throne among the mountains. He read in these events the dark character traced by the finger of destiny. He felt his empire melting away like a morning mist. He might well feel so. Some of the most important cities in the neighborhood of Cholula, intimidated by the fate of that capital, now sent their envoys to the Castilian camp, tendering their allegiance and propitiating the favor of the strangers by rich presents of gold and slaves. Montezuma, alarmed at these signs of defection, took counsel again of his impotent deities, but although the altars smoked with fresh hecatombs of human victims, he obtained no cheering response. He determined, therefore, to send another embassy to the Spaniards, disavowing any participation in the conspiracy of Cholula. Meanwhile, Cortes was passing his time in that capital. He thought that the impression produced by the late scenes, and by the present restoration of tranquillity, offered a fair opportunity for the good work of conversion. He accordingly urged the citizens to embrace the cross, and abandon the false guardians who had abandoned them in their extremity. But the traditions of centuries rested on the holy city, shedding a halo of glory around it as the sanctuary of the gods, the religious capital of Anahuac. It was too much to expect that the people would willingly resign this preeminence, and descend to the level of an ordinary community. Still Cortes might have pressed the matter, however unpalatable, but for the renewed interposition of the wise Olmedo, who persuaded him to postpone it till after the reduction of the whole country. During the occurrence of these events, envoys arrived from Mexico. They were charged, as usual, with a rich present of plate and ornaments of gold, 
among others artificial birds in imitation of turkeys with plumes of the same precious metal to these were added fifteen hundred cotton dresses of delicate fabric the emperor even expressed his regret at the catastrophe of cholula vindicated himself from any share in the conspiracy which he said had brought deserved retribution on the heads of its authors and explained the existence of an aztec force in the neighbourhood by the necessity of repressing some disorders there one cannot contemplate this pusillanimous conduct of montezuma without mingled feelings of pity and contempt it is not easy to reconcile his assumed innocence of the plot with many circumstances connected with it but it must be remembered here and always that his history is to be collected solely from spanish writers and such of the natives as flourished after the conquest when the country had become a colony of spain it is the hard fate of this unfortunate monarch to be wholly indebted for his portraiture to the pencil of the enemies more than a fortnight had elapsed since the entrance of the spaniards into cholula and cortez now resolved without loss of time to resume his march towards the capital his rigorous reprisals had so far intimidated the cholulans that he felt assured he should no longer leave an active enemy in his rear to annoy him in case of retreat he had the satisfaction before his departure to heal the feud in outward appearance at least that had so long subsisted between the holy city and tlaxcala and which under the revolution which so changed the destinies of the country never revived it was with some disquietude that he now received an application from his sempoalan allies to be allowed to withdraw from the expedition and return to their own homes they had incurred too deeply the resentment of the aztec emperor by their insults to his collectors and by their cooperation with the spaniards to care to trust themselves in his capital it was in vain cortez endeavoured to reassure them by promises of his protection their habitual distrust and dread of the great montezuma were not to be overcome the general learned their determination with regret for they had been of infinite service to their cause by their staunch fidelity and courage all this made it the more difficult for him to resist their reasonable demand liberally recompensing their services therefore from the rich wardrobe and treasures of the emperor he took leave of his faithful followers before his own departure from cholula he availed himself of their return to send letters to juan de escalante his lieutenant at veracruz acquainting him with the successful progress of the expedition he enjoined on that officer to strengthen the fortifications of the place so as the better to resist any hostile interference from cuba an event for which cortez was ever on the watch and to keep down revolt among the natives he especially commended the totonacs to his protection as allies whose fidelity to the spaniards exposed them in no slight degree to the vengeance of the aztecs end of book three chapter seven recording by kalinda in raymond new hampshire on november eighteenth two thousand seven